these are guys who would rather talk to the trees than actually have a <laughs> in-depth conversation with a woman. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. So this is the Gospel and Musical Theater. I'm Peter Elliott from Vancouver, British Columbia, priest, retired Cathedral Dean, friend of Nathan LaRude, he, who's in Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon, Nathan LaRude, 1849 gold rusher, uh, experienced <laughs> on the on the, the steps of the, of the gold rush and eager to talk about my experiences with my partner, Clint Eastwood, and our shared wife, Jean Seberg, as we sought to make a life on, in the Canadian West in 1849 and 1850. Here we go. So we this go. is kind of a, almost a bonus track for our Learner and Low section, yeah. where we want to both talk about Paint Your Wagon, which Nathan has seen very recently, and I saw <laughs> in its first release, Yes, I'm That Old, and probably move from there to talk a bit about male figures in uh, the works of uh, Alan J. Lerner and yes, Fritz indeed. Lowe, so. Got a dream boy? Got a song? Okay. Paint your wagon and, and come, come along. along. What does what does that? Do you know what that phrase means? I mean, obviously it's the title. Like, what does it mean? Like, as like when I tell someone, "Hey, go paint your wagon." What does that? What does that mean? I have no idea. I, I did either. watch the Simpsons episode, which we should do. In our <laughs> which we should totally to accept. Right. Where they literally paint the wagon. <laughs> it's a very. Yeah, it's very so dramatic. keen to find a Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin movie, and Homer <laughs> brings home uh, Paint Your Wagon, thinking it's going to be Joshua Logan's Paint Your Wagon, as Bart says. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's a musical, and they're all disappointed. But so this happened. Uh, remind me of the sequence. Uh, Brigadoon. Mm -hmm. Brigadoon is nineteen forty. 48, 48, 47, 47 somewhere in okay. there. Something like that. Paint Your Wagon is their next show, 1951. It 1951. opens, end of 1951, opens on Broadway. And then My Fair Lady, and, and then, then My Camelot. Fair Lady, and then Camelot, yes. I think that's the sequence. Uh, and Gigi, somewhere in there, but we've talked about <sighs> Gigi quite enough yes. in the previous episode, we don't need to go back Unfortunate detour into pedophilia in the, the late 60s, but <laughs> yes, that's... And so we have the stage play of Paint Your Wagon, which ran about 300 performances, not mm -hmm. a long run. I, I think Alan J. Lerner um, described it as a success, but not a hit. Uh, and yeah. that's, a, that's not a bad way of summarizing it. And then, um, uh, then the film, which bears very little or passing same songs. Mm -hmm. Some of the same songs, some new songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, starring uh, Lee Marvin, Clint Eastwood, and Gene Seberg, mm -hmm. and uh, Harvey Presnell, who yep. went on to have a so. And you watched this just recently, Nathan. I did. I'd never, I had never seen it, and it's actually, um, it's a. I, so I'm an Oregon boy, right? Grew up in, grew up in Oregon my whole life. It, Paint Your Wagon, I had forgotten, is actually kind of one of the quintessential filmed in Oregon. There's not a lot of Hollywood films that were filmed in Oregon, but part of the reason why Paint Your Wagon cost so much money to make was that they filmed it in the Wallowa Mountains in eastern Oregon. Um, so the entire cast and crew, 700 people, were being wow. trucked 90 minutes both ways into the Wallowa Mountains every day where Paramount constructed a western village, essentially, out in the middle of freaking nowhere 
uh, Clint Eastwood and Gene Seberg were holed up in a cabin, shacking up, actually having a little affair. So they they helicoptered in on set every day. Um, it was unbelievably expensive, but the scenery, uh, every every shot includes these gorgeous shots of the Willow, of the Willow Mountains of Eastern Oregon. Um, and it is, I mean, they they make good use of that twenty six million doll. I mean, it's a it is a pretty. It's not a it's not a particularly artistically film. You know, the the camera work is nothing to nothing to. But the scenery is remarkable. It is a. Right. Uh, you can imagine on the big screen. Um, it's a it's a film that probably deserves to be seen on the big screen. Some pretty. Well, I remember seeing it as a, as a kid, and yeah, this was the age where I think uh, I was sixty eight when it was released. Mm-hmm. It was after, if I've got it right, after the Sound of Music and right. Hollywood was and My Fair Lady. Hollywood was excited uh, that that musical theater on the screen was mm-hmm. going to be because there'd been great success with South yep. Pacific with Oklahoma. Uh, less so with Carousel, uh, Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. uh, Sound of Music, My Fair Lady. Yeah, for these about were all ten huge. years. Nineteen what? Fifty Oklahoma is nineteen fifty five. Sound of yeah. Music is nineteen sixty five. So that decade, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, movie musicals and not just and not just Broadway musicals translated. The Arthur Freed. Yeah, that's where Gigi comes in, right? Like also right. new new material being developed as uh, for as Hollywood musicals. Um, that were winning awards and making tons of road shows, you know, that were this big, expansive. Some of them were three and a half, four hours long with intermissions yeah. and live orchestras. I mean, it was a it was a huge uh, moneymaker. It was a juggernaut. And then things really start to shift after The Sound of Music, right? And, and you know, 1965 yeah. looks very different from 1968 in the rearview mirror, right? Like the, yeah. the, the mid-century American, white American establishment basically falls apart, and by 19, late 68 or 69, I think, is actually when Paint Your Wagon comes along. Okay, um, yeah. we're, we're, in a different, we're in a different world. But Hollywood's still throwing big amount of money at it, yeah. to your point, about mm-hmm. the opulence of the film production. Yeah, yeah. Although also really trying to do, I mean, I think the interesting thing about Paint Your Wagon as a film is that it's, there's a little bit of a nod to the late 60s counterculture, right? Like they're sort of trying to present these folks as kind of proto-hippies. There's a, the nitty-gritty dirt band appears to to play Hand Me Down That Can and, of Beans. And there's this big like mud stomping. It's all, it, I think it's meant to evoke Woodstock, right? It's sort of this music festival right. experience. You know, Lee Marvin is drunk on all kinds of, and I think maybe there's even some drugs involved in this, but it's clearly a kind of, not quite psychedelic, but next door to, you know, explosion of energy, this big kind of folk festival out in the middle of the, of the Oregon wilderness, um, which, which feels to me, you know, and Clint Eastwood and Gene Seberg, right? That kind of bid for cultural relevancy, 1969, in right. the guise of a big budget Hollywood musical. And those two things don't, don't work together particularly well. I think that's part of why the, the movie musical uh, is kind of largely forgotten today. I mean, it's sort of a, it's a notorious flop uh, and doesn't really work particularly well. It's not, a, it's not a particularly successful film, although a very interesting film, I would argue. And a, 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 a three-way marriage in the middle of it, which That's, yeah. uh, comes out of nowhere. It wasn't in the stage play. <laughs> comes out of nowhere. Yeah, not in the stage play. Not in any version of the, you know, there's about six different versions of Paint Your Wagon that have been staged at various points from 51 to 2018 or whatever. Um, none of them include this sort of three-way, I mean, polygamous marriage, basically, between Gene Seberg and Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin. Um, Gene Seberg playing a former Mormon bride, right? And this and this is a detail that's consistent across most of the. Uh, this is in the stage version, right? This Mormon couple, well, this Mormon trio comes to town. A man and his two wives, and he, out of you know, financial expediency, decides we should auction one of these women off. 
Um, it's kind of played for laughs, I think, in both the the stage show and in the movie. Like, isn't this isn't this funny that here they are auctioning this woman off and Lee Marvin, drunk off his ass, bids on her in Windsor. But yeah, so so she's come out of a Mormon polygamous marriage and basically suggests to Clint Eastwood and when she falls in love with Clint Eastwood, but she still kind of you know has feelings for Lee Marvin. Well, I you know I was I was one of two wives married to one man, how come the shoe can't be on the other foot? Which feels like a very sort of late 60s question, right? Like yes. kind of playing around yes. with, uh, with you know, kind of the, 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 the feminist revolution. Uh, why can't a woman have two husbands if, you know, if, if polygamy right. for men is, is appropriate? Uh, so they, they try it. God love them. Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood are sort of, they kind of look at each other and like, okay, well, I will if you will. Here again, right, kind of played for laughs, like, ha, 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 isn't this funny? But yeah. but underneath the, the not very successful humor, uh, it's a really interesting, I think, a really kind of interesting depiction of an alternative, an alternative uh, gender arrangement, an alternative marriage, if you like, yeah. uh, from a from a kind of blip, a blip of time when that sort of and, and it's very much presented as like this can happen in no name city. This can happen on the frontier. Lee Marvin's character has been pretty clear about, right, like this is a place where we can experiment with stuff. We're not, you know, we're going to. Uh, push civilization as far away as we possibly can. Um, so really the film is in some ways about the encroachment of bourgeois kind of middle, middle values culture that ruins this, uh, this arrangement that, they've, that these frontiersmen have got with this woman. Um, and of course, you know, the no-name city sinks into the mire and it basically, you know, kind of the <laughs> traditional American values went out in the end. But there is this kind right. of interesting ambivalence at the heart of the thing, right? Like, is, is this possible? Is this... Is this just a kind of joke? Is this a sort of Midwestern uh, craziness? Or is there something really interesting um, about what can happen among women and men when society, social values don't, uh, don't dictate what they can and can't do? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a bit of an answer to Oklahoma in some way from Lerner and Lowe, the same notion of a pioneer spirit, a conquering the land. Uh, yeah. an erasure of the indigenous reality. Yep. Almost um, entirely. This is kind of virgin territory. We yep. we get to claim it. We're here. You know, there's no no sense of there being people here previously, or at least as I recall the film. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pushing out of uh, a new frontier, very, the pioneer spirit, I guess is what I'm wanting to. Yeah. Uh, and that, uh, to hell with the conventions of right. settled world. We're going to do things differently now. Yeah, because we're in charge. Right. Yeah. Which is, I mean, freedom. At, at one level, it's a it's a very sort of uh, <laughs> white male version of of privilege and freedom, right? Like that, yeah. white white men can maybe uh, build. And you know, there's a lot kind of invested in No Name City is all men, right? And and that's a crisis, right? Like, what do we do about the fact that we're all we're all men, we're all lonely, we're all horny, frankly? And they, you know, they, that's why they send away to kind of you know capture the stagecoach of the six prostitutes that are coming through town and bring them back, right? Like, I mean, it's it's basically a, an entirely homosocial world. And at one level, there is great freedom, as you say, in that, right? There's a lot of privilege right. embedded in that kind of a freedom. Um, but this is our land. We've claimed it. Nobody can tell us what to do. We're not going to be domesticated. We're not farmers. We're gold miners. You know, Lee Marvin, you know, I was born under a wandering star. That song really exemplifies this notion of American masculinity, which is so much tied to dominating the land, dominating women. Um, there's, there's, it's, a, it's an ambivalent thing. I was born under a wandering star I was born under a wandering
children starve. Stay and put can kill you, standing still's a curse. But to settle down can drive you mad, but moving on is worse. I was born under a wandering star. Now when I learned to talk the word they taught me was goodbye. That and where's your hat'll do until the day I die. Aching for to stop and always aching for to go. Searching but for what I never will know. I was born under a wandering star. And yet, you know, the, the civilizing influence is always kind of right there. And at the end of at the end of the movie, that's what wins, right? Like these farmers start right. coming in. And that is, in some ways, that does feel very similar to Oklahoma, right? Using the kind of the marriage trope uh, and all that comes along with it. You know, the, the farmer and the cowboy, right? Like Curly represents right. that same kind of independent spirit. He's a cowboy, but Laurie domesticates him, marries him, and he becomes a farmer, and they become a state, right? And in some ways, Oklahoma, right. Paint Your Wagon is playing with some similar kind of ideas. I mean, the idea, I think, at the end is, you know, this is going to become California. We're going to become the breadbasket of America. This is, this is going to become Hollywood, right? These orange groves, these, this, these mining fields are going to become orange groves. The orange groves are going to become Disneyland, and here we are, right? Like, <laughs> suburbia is born. America. Suburbia America, is born. And, and one with uh, guns and... Yeah testosterone and chutzpah if they were you know just a kind of we're going to go out and we're going to get the land we're going to claim it we're going to yep. make it our own uh this is our space uh and if we don't like somebody we'll shoot their legs off you right. know i mean it's, nobody can uh, tell us what to do we're a law unto ourselves can, yeah, yeah we're yeah. going to police this uh, thing sort of uh, uh, of the poster musical for the Second Amendment. You know, yeah. we got our guns, yep. um, away we go. Yeah, the kind of the libertarian impulse in it, right? Like, because it comes along yeah. with, right, nobody can, you know, if I want to if I want to shack up with a guy and a girl, nobody can tell me, right? So there is a kind of interesting, uh, I don't know if we call it progressive sexual ethic, but something that starts to look like a progressive sexual ethic right next to, you know, guns, you know, nobody can, nobody can take away my gun. Uh, we are a law unto ourselves. We don't answer to any government. We don't answer to right. any authority. It's it's libertarian, but the the sexual ethic. I mean, the, the uh, there's many problems with it. But one is the woman is still the property. Yeah, very um, much so. She she was purchased, then she shared. She has agency. She does, um, and she has an interesting kind of. Actually, in some ways, the I think Gene Seberg is really the most interesting part. In some ways, of Paint Your Wagon. Um, there's a really interesting moment at the very beginning. You know, she comes into town. Her her sister wife is on the horse because her sister wife has the baby. Her horrible husband and Gene Seber is kind of walking along in the muck. She's clearly the sex pot of the thing, and she kind of knows it, right? You see her kind of looking at these guys, thinking like, "Okay, here's my chance to get out of this polygamous marriage that I clearly don't want to be in." Um, and there's a throwaway line when they're sitting in the tavern. Her husband says, "Oh yeah, she gave birth to a a baby two weeks ago and she lost it." And for just an instant, the camera kind of lingers on Gene Seberg, and she gets like w five seconds where you see the profound grief in this woman's right. existence. And then mm. we cut away to the auction scene, and Lee Marvin bids on her, uh, and she. But she's the one who then drives. Right. Like she's the one who negotiates and basically demands. Right. Like I'm in love with Clint Eastwood. I'm in love with Lee Marvin. And those I don't I shouldn't have to choose. Right. There's no problem with that. Why? Why can't we make this work? 
Uh, and she's right. really kind of the she's the driving force, and really, and then in the driving force and kind of how how it all ends, right? She's also the one who says, "I I think I want more than this. I want more than uh, a hidden closeted life that nobody can know about. I want respectability. I want to be able to show my face in town. Um, I want a cabin of my own. That's that's what she asked for Lee Marvin. I'll I'll be your wife. I'll share your name. You need to build me my own cabin, right? It's 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 Eliza Doolittle. All I want is a room somewhere far away from the cold night air with one enormous chair." Someone's head resting right. on my knee, warm and tender. She doesn't get to sing that song, but the character is driven by some similar kinds of impulses. Um, and she really is kind of the organizing motivation and impetus for a lot of what happens in Paint Your Wagon in a really interesting way. Still completely, as you say, right? She's, uh, it's, a, it's a woman as seen entirely through men's eyes. She's property. She, um, she's barter, bartered and traded like a, like a cow. Uh, and that's not really, you know, the film kind of treats that as a joke. There's not really a lot of uh, questioning of, of those social mores, but she is a really interesting character, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and beautifully and played I, by Gene Seberg. She's actually quite good, course. I think, in the film. And I, in a previous conversation, I recall you're saying um, something, a quote from, I think it was uh, Alan J. Lerner, that all of their songs are about lonely men. Yeah, well, loneliness. I think what he, what he, what he said about the, the score um, and this is more true, I think, of the Broadway score, which actually has more more female characters in it. More of the songs actually go. Gene Seberg gets one song. I think she's dubbed. Um, all the songs in the movie are are men's songs. But in the Broadway production, the Lee Marvin character, whose name is Ben, has a daughter, and she's actually much more in the in the stage show. She's really the driving action of the thing. But yeah, what what Alan J. Lerner said was every song in this score is about loneliness, and that's really true, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, you know, even some of the songs that didn't make it into the film, but are in, you know have become kind of classics. Um, I talked to the trees. Yeah. Uh, Another autumn, right? The, you know, wandering star is a great example, right? I was born under a wandering star. Every time I try to settle down, something doesn't work out about it. Another autumn. I've known the chill every autumn I feel it more and more for you can dream in spring when every hope is high but when the fall comes in they all begin to fade and die another shown if you're alone when autumn comes you'll be alone all winter all of these songs are about people who are, are searching for a kind of belonging um, and yet yeah. it always seems to be eluding them, whether that's love, whether that's a home, whether that's uh, freedom of a certain kind that society isn't offering them. I mean, everybody in Paint Your Wagon is longing for something. And there's a deep kind of existential loneliness at the heart of it. Well, even, you know, the big tune or the, the hit song uh, that did the folk circuit, uh, they call the wind Mariah. Yeah, the great the lyric, 11 o'clock um, number, yeah. 
out here they've got a name for rain and wind and fire only, and here it comes. But when you're lost and all alone, there ain't no name for lonely. Now I'm a lost and lonely man without the stars to guide me. Mariah blowed. Come on, Alan J. Lerner, can we? Uh, <laughs> blowed. Well, blowed. he's, you know, he's writing in, <laughs> I suppose I've got a cowboy, attempted cowboy. Mar- Mariah blowed her love to me. I need her here beside me. And it's like the relationship, at least as this song expresses it, is about a woman filling the emptiness of a, of a man. The, mm-hmm. the, um, it's not a, it, it, you know, it's not, you may see a stranger across a crowded room and somehow, you know, you know, even then it's, a, it's not the love at first sight. It's, it's not even the attraction that the King and Anna in the King and I have for each other, though it's not a sexual attraction. There's a sense of, you know, to quote Jerry Maguire, AKA Tom Cruise, uh, a kind of you complete me thing yeah. here. It's it's a it's a lonely man who needs a companion. Think of Henry Higgins, who's kind of uh, maybe he's happy with Pickering. I don't know, but there seems to be a kind of solitary loneliness at the heart of of Henry Higgins, as certainly there is for King Arthur yeah. uh, in Camelot. And uh, so, just begin to wonder about the imagination of Alan J. Lerner. Uh, we won't even get into Maurice Chevalier and uh, <laughs> that uh, certain kind of loneliness. Girls. Thank heavens for little girls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're really onto something, though. And what's interesting about Paint Your Wagon and kind of given its sexual, uh, the, the 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 the. I mean, it's at some level, the kind of deep misogyny at the heart of of the show, right? I mean, they call the wind Mariah is a great example. You know, they they have a name for the wind. The wind is Tess. I think the fire is Joe. But you know, Mariah kind of like like the gold panning thing, right? Like women and the the natural world that gets gendered as feminine here, Mariah and Tess, yeah. is something that can be acquired, right? Like it's something that you can go out and claim, maybe even buy. But there's no sense of, uh, I mean, to, to put gospel terms around it, right? There's no sense of mutual self-giving here. It's I right. need to get myself a woman to to solve this loneliness. I need to find myself, I need to capture that wind, uh, bottle it up, box it up, sell it if you like. I mean, there's a kind of economic model at the heart of this thing, right? It's a weird kind of patriarchal capitalism um, where women and the natural world become commodities that I can purchase in order to um, assuage this existential loneliness, I feel. That's it, Jake. Play something. Let's hear something besides the wind blowing through them damn hills. Away out here they got a name for wind and rain and fire. The rain is Tess, the fire's Joe, and they call the wind Mariah. Mariah blows the stars around and sends the clouds a-flying. Mariah makes the mountains sound like folks were up there. Before I knew 
I had a girl and she had me And the sun was always shining But then one day I left my girl I left her far behind me And now I'm lost, so golden lost Not even God can find me and maybe the call, you, the call they call the woman Mariah is really about this. Like at a certain level, I think all these characters know that's not gonna work, right? Like I was born under a wandering star, so there is a, there is at least at, at the natural level, there's a sense of yeah, you can try to you can pan all the gold you want out of these rivers, you can take whatever you want from that that Tess, that Mariah, um, but you're never gonna tame her. She's always gonna elude you. You're always actually gonna feel this existential loneliness. No woman can solve that. No, you know, attempt to box up the natural world can solve that. Um, there's, I mean, in right. some ways it's almost like a, it's, it's not original sin. That's not the frame, but it is something like a, an existential reality of lack and loneliness at the heart of, in this instance, at, at least men, which, which starts to, I mean, starts to, I think it does start to kind of trade on almost theological grounds. How, how do we deal with this existential longing? Uh, the longing for Eden, if you like, a longing for completion in a way that doesn't commodify or treat other people or the natural world as objects that can be yeah. bought, sold, traded, and acquired by me. Yeah, yeah. so, th I mean, we talked about Brigadoon, and it's been one of the things you and I have talked about a number of times with that musical. I remember I, I wrote a piece for, I think, a lecture at, via, at Vancouver School of Theology, and we did the course about the, the phenomenon of the post-Second World War men and a kind of emotional, well, like what would be the opposite of emotional intelligence, the kind of- uh, <laughs> Immaturity. Yeah, uh, that I think was somewhat endemic to the social history of the time of these musicals. And certainly Henry Higgins doesn't have a lot of emotional intelligence. King Arthur does in some way, mm -hmm. but, you know, his I was thinking about this this morning and I was anticipating our conversation this afternoon. Uh, although I love the tune, there's something wrong with the song, How to Handle a Woman. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, right, as if she's deeply, something that must be handled. <laughs> like maybe yeah. you should just stop trying to handle her, dude. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, this whole notion of, of handling, uh, women of, a, uh, of the deep kind of existential loneliness that we were, yeah. that you were describing that I was born under a wandering star or they call the wind Mariah or, you know, these are guys who would rather talk to the trees than actually have a <laughs> in-depth conversation with a woman as a as a genuine partner in yeah. the enterprise of life. Or am well, I being too harsh? No, I, and actually, I mean, I talk to the trees is actually in some ways a great example, right? Because it also ties the right, like I've got all these tree friends, I've got to, you know, but they don't, <laughs> they don't really satisfy, you know. But then when it, when it pivots, right? Suddenly my words hit someone else's ears, touch someone else's heartstrings too. And then what he says, is, I tell you my dreams. And while you're listening to me, I suddenly see them come true, right? So it's still very much, even though, you know, at one level, it's a love song, right? Like you're better than the trees, Jennifer is who he's singing to <laughs> in, the, in the show. Um, it's still framed as like, oh, now I've found somebody to listen to me. 
right? Now I found an, an empty receptacle into which I can just pour myself without any mm. concern for what, you know, right? Like, like the land, right? Like it's not an empty vessel. There are, there's a person inside that dress uh, with thoughts, right. feelings, hopes, and dreams of her own. And, you know, lonely, lonely guy, if you're going to make this work, it can't just be talking to her. It can't just be handling her. Uh, and, and that's the level at which, you know, the learner and low material doesn't, and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, speculate too much on Alan J. Lerner. I, I do kind of blame him for a lot of this, the man who was married eight times <laughs> and seems to have had a pretty nasty misogynist streak running through him, not unlike Henry Higgins. Um, that feels to me like the, uh, I don't know, the sort of proto situation that never really gets explored in Lerner and Lowe stuff. Yeah. But the, the, I mean, in some ways, the problem of the women, right? Because even in the shows, they are framed as... Uh, vessels for men, uh, screens for men's projections, vessels for men's des right. men's desire. I mean, Eliza Doolittle is such a, right? Like the Pygmalion story is such a telling image for them, right? Creations by men who then at some point kind of rebel a little bit, but in order to get out of the toxicity, they have to leave the theater, right? These women have to leave the framework um, because the framework yes. of these shows will not really give them any sort of real agency. I talk to the trees, but they don't listen to me. I talk to the stars, but they never hear me. The breeze hasn't time to stop and hear what I say. I talk to them all. But suddenly my words reach someone else's ear, touch someone else's heart springs to. I tell you my dreams, and while you're listening to me, I suddenly see them come I can see us on an April night, seeping brandy underneath the stars, reading poems in the candlelight, to the strumming of guitars. I will tell you all the books I've read, and the way I met the King of France. Then I'll send the servants off to bed, and I'll ask you for a dance. Just like the feminist movement really had women leaving the perceptions that had grown around what a woman's role was yeah. uh, in society. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but uh, we're recording these uh, podcasts through pandemic times. And so, uh, while we've been sheltering in place, we've been catching up on TV and watching old series. So we're uh, we're kind of in the midst of a madman uh, world. Of oh boy! Speaking the of the ad agencies <laughs> of the 1960s, but you know the the gender politics there of the men having the power, the position, the money, and the women actually doing the work and having the emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. which the men rely on but then discount, and then the whole. Uh, use of alcohol. I mean, the other night we finished and I said to my husband, God, they drink a lot. Like, and I know it's a TV program, right. but 
also, I'm of an age where uh, I lived for a little while in the early to late 70s in the dying part of that world of white male supremacy. Let's just yeah. name it for yeah. what it is. Sure. And my what I learned about that was underneath this kind of bravado, the kind of macho guy, there was an undeveloped emotional life. There was, in fact for the men who were returning from the war, completely unresolved, what we would call now post-traumatic stress. You didn't want to get too close to any feelings lest you have a breakdown. I'm right. doing inverted commas with my fingers. And women were expected, I think, in this white male world to carry the emotional life of a family, of a man, to the extent that he would open himself up, if he did at all. Um, uh, and uh, the, the, the wreckage of, of women's lives, yeah. the high incidence of divorce, and the alcoholism, and underneath that, the deep loneliness of yeah. a whole generation of men um, is, is kind of the result of that. And I, I see you know, the kind of paint your wagon, macho depiction of yeah. a kind of self-reliant, we can get it through lonely man as being somewhat emblematic of that, mm -hmm. of that whole time period. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I think as you so beautifully stated in, in some ways, you know, w w not, not maybe the most important, but one of the victims of that white male supremacist world were the white men who perpetrated it, right? Like, I mean, that that, yeah. that world came at a cost to them too. I don't want to compare that to the, the suffering of non-white right. people, the suffering, I mean, like, that's different, right? Um, the suffering but, of women, the abuse, and right, so forth. Right, right. Not, they're not equal. They're not, you know, that, that's, not, that's not equal suffering. But there is a kind of, you know, the, the perpetrators of an of a, of a unjust system are, are to a certain degree, uh, victims of that system. Uh, men, yeah. men bore some of the cost. I, I think about even, you know, even today, a couple of years ago, there was a study that, um, you know, suicide, of course, is rampant. I, I think it has increased actually in pandemic. Um, and a couple of years ago, the, the statistics were that by by far the majority of suicide victims were white men in their 40s and 50s. Uh, the yeah. kind of I mean, to a yeah. certain degree, this has not gone away. Right. The the toxic no. loneliness at the heart of um, men who are used to being in power. Uh, and are not all, you know, now some of that is still continuous and some of it is more contested. I think that's its own kind of interesting time that we're living through. Um, but certainly yes. mid-century, right? You think about these men who have returned to the war, returned to the home front, are not really processing their trauma and yet are going yeah. to the Broadway theater and uh, seeing shows like My Fair Lady and Camelot and Brigadoon and Paint Your Wagon. I mean, what, what are those shows tapping into? To a certain degree, I wonder, like, to what degree is that allowing these guys a way to process some of this trauma, right? Like, watching Lee Marvin sing and I Was Born Under a Wandering Star, I mean, do, do these men feel something, right? Do they have this right. moment of connection um, that maybe is, you know, the, what I want, the beginnings of some kind of salvation, maybe? Or is this reifying and and kind of consolidating once again uh, the system that that exists in a way that that tr continues to trap them in it. Uh, yeah. At a certain point, do we need like Eliza Doolittle in the in the modern revival? Do we need to walk out the door of the theater um, because yeah. this world is is perpetuating a kind of misogyny, a kind of toxicity, and a kind of violence? Well, um, you know, I, I remember from uh, my time doing uh, 
clergy have this thing called clinical pastoral education that we have to do. And it was sort of invented in the 40s when it was all clergy men, for the most part, at least in uh, most mainline denominations, very few women in professional ministry. And part of the part of the agenda of CPE, clinical pastoral education, where you worked in a hospital or a prison as a chaplain and then had um, many hours of interpersonal relations, kind of a deep, kind of a, it's ministry boot camp. It's kind of a psychological, <laughs> was to find some emotion in the men. <laughs> yeah. It was also, frankly, to smoke out the crazies and the queers, mm-hmm. um, the yeah. people who had genuine psychiatric problems, and also for a lot of gay men who, who were hiding or in the closet. Mm-hmm. It was a endurance test. I mean, that's kind of where I was at it yeah. to not reveal too much. And right. um, but it kind of break out. So I think about all that and then wondering, so when, you know, hair would be one moment on Broadway where the male emotional life is revealed. But uh, I suddenly wondered, is the great moment of uh, men becoming in touch with their emotional self at the end of company when Bobby sings Being Alive. And in most of the, in most of the productions, it kind of builds to a crescendo. And we'll talk more about this when we get into our conversation about Stephen Sondheim, where he he screams uh, yeah. the production i saw Stop. with raul is yeah. just completely and then begins mm-hmm. to imagine what a genuine connection not just sexually not just physically right. but emotionally might mean to him in his life yeah uh, but you get that's that the, moment that's the yeah. question he's at what do you get what do you get um, and then he, and then he first skates as this is what you get, right? And it's not worth it. Somebody to hold, somebody holds you too close. Somebody hurts you too deep. Somebody sits in your chair and ruins your, like, why would I want that? And then, you know, second verse shuts his eyes or however you stage it. Right. And then, okay, I guess actually <laughs> like at some level, and this is what I think you're, you're tapping into, right? Finding that loneliness, finding that place in him that really does long for connection, um, and maybe that, you know, depending on how, on how you understand company, how you stage it, how you interpret it, like maybe is ready then to build something out of that or maybe yeah. not. Right. I mean, like the other possibility for Bobby is, you know, kind of as the characters in Paint Your Wagon, right, identifies that thing is real in me and then picks up and starts saying, I was born under a wandering star and I'm never going to find it. Uh, I'm going to keep I'm going to keep looking. Uh, maybe maybe with better degrees of emotional intelligence than others, but but that that the fulfillment of that dream is not maybe going to be possible for me because of you know for all kinds of reasons the way I've been socialized the way that the assumptions that I was taught to make around other people and women and you know like I think that that crisis of identity if we want whatever you want to call it really is at the heart of so, I mean you know because most Broadway musicals are put together by crews of mostly Jewish men many of them gay. You know, so to a certain degree, like, right, like, I mean, we, we can talk about this is a whole kind of a thing. There's actually been really interesting studies done on the, the phenomenon of mid-century Broadway musicals, how many of them are done by Jewish creators, how many of them are done by gay creators, right? So insider, outsider, people who, as you, as you said about CPE, right, people have learned how to code switch. So there's a little bit of a standing outside of the, the world and commenting on it, watching it. Um, but also, right, these are all men who at a certain degree are identifying uh, with yeah. this with this experience 
Yeah. And and the Alan J. Lerner uh, six marriages was not mm-hmm. an unfamiliar pattern of yeah and crazy alcoholism to... and drug abuse. Alcoholism. I mean, like he really he really yeah. fought with some demons. That that man, that genius. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. misogynist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And never found. I mean, I think it's both tragedy for him and for all the women he was in relationship with that. Over and over again, it was repeating the same right, the same pattern. pattern. Many of them, you know, the age of his daughter and then his granddaughter, right? So, I mean, a lot of the kind of traditional (laughs) tropes. Unfortunately, it's he's a little bit of a of a lifelong Gigi. Maurice Chevalier might be the the closest to Alan J. Lerner we get. Um, but also, you know, like you think about, you know, if if, if these portray and Alan J. Lerner is not just a lyricist of these shows, right? He is also the librettist. So he's, I mean, not with obviously with My Fair Lady, that's George Bernard, Bernard Shaw, um, but with Cam- well, in Camelot, I suppose is also Th. But you know, in in Brigadoon, he puts the show together. He, he puts, puts the show the together. Narrative together. Yep, he's yeah. arranging the songs. He's creating the characters. So if you think about Henry Higgins, King Arthur, Maurice Chevalier. Uh, Lee, Lee Marvin, Ben Rumson, his character's name, in Paint Your Wagon. I mean, like, these are reflections of this man to a certain degree. Uh, well, even Tommy and Brigadoon, who, yeah. you know, will leave the fiancé in New York with whom he's developed a presumably at least month, if not a, maybe a year's relationship, maybe more, to run off with a Scottish girl who he meets for under 24 hours, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's there's there's a certain romance to it, but there's also a kind of tilt you know yeah. really like um well he's born under a wandering star right like why uh, settle for the not... the flesh and blood new york sophisticate when you can run off to brigadoon and marry some 17th century lass who only appears once every 100 years i mean isn't that isn't yeah. that a kind of mid-century male fantasy and i think in the life of the church um if we just kind of overlay this experience of uh of of the the vacance the emotional absence of men from the world as the church began to grapple with and respond to issues of women in leadership and the whole i mean at my time in seminary in the late 70s many more sort of encounter groups many ways for people to meet each other there was a fleeing from the church of mm-hmm. men who really wanted the church to be a place where they could exercise some social convenience, have some agency, make some business connections. But when it got too close, uh, emotionally, spiritually, we might even say, then there was this sort of abandonment, um, except for, you know, uh, men, you know, bless them through the 12 step programs Mm -hmm. who realize that vulner, that expressing vulnerability is part of the human journey. It's not a sign of weakness to connect with others, to, to have your, your needs, your loneliness met in relationship was not letting go this kind of notion of the Marlboro man, you know, the, the single man against the sky, the, the born under a wandering star, but actually to form relationships of of greater agency and emotional uh, interdependence and all that sort of thing. You know, yeah. it's uh, it's an interesting time in the in the social history of of North American culture, I yeah. think, and certainly uh, from an analysis of feminism we can see that these shows do violence, I think, to Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. And I think as you're saying, and I would agree, there's also uh, a deep deprivation of of 
what could be so much richer a life for for men yeah. for men and women for and, men and women because there there are these I, mean, I think about the reign in spain we, when we talked about this right and interestingly yeah, in yeah. learner and low shows they're almost always menage a trois moments right they, they, it's the it's almost always two two men and a woman which i mean you think about alan i don't i'm not even going to speculate on alan j learner's stuff <laughs> or frederick lowe's or whomever but they they tend to be these moments where there is a kind i mean and to spin it theologically almost a sort of trinitarian perichoresis Right, that the sweet yes. spot in learner and love. Perichoresis is the sort of uh, the theological term that when we talk about, you know, how do you define the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? How do they inter interconnect? And the classical way is this sort of Greek dance. You know, this is what the early church fathers said. They're in this kind of three way skipping. You know, two, one one step forward, two steps back, kind of weird cultic dance thing that apparently ha- I don't. I, 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 I'm speculating here, uh, but but basically a a, a three way dance between three partners. Yeah. Um, that is that is the nature of God. That is the nature of the trinity uh this sort of it's not a it's not a twosome it's a it's a some kind of shared uh shared dance between three parties and that's the that's what learner and lower kind of longing for and you get these you know the rain in spain uh you think about arthur guinevere and lancelot there's a couple yeah, moments lancelot. where the three of them yeah. kind of can come together on a shared project uh maybe paint your wagon it, it kind of plays this idea out in some really interesting ways right what happens if if the rain in spain what happens if they move in together what happens if they actually sexualize that relationship does it work does it not it ultimately breaks down um, but there's a longing for this possibility of how not just a man and a woman can be together but actually how men can be with other men sometimes with yes. the mediating effect so that that puts a woman in a you know in a pretty impossible situation right like to have to be the the emotional mediator between two men she has to do a lot of emotional labor that's that's creates its own kinds of problems but there are these really interesting images i almost want to say of like the the possibility of the kingdom of god in these shows and then of course almost invariably everything falls apart most learner and low shows actually do not end particularly happily uh, they end right. with the with the death of that dream. Don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment, um, but that yeah. brief shining moment is usually in the past. It usually is yeah, not. Yeah, except Brigadoon, where love makes all things possible. But I always wonder, what about his fiance stuck in New York? Right, yeah. uh, he's gone off and joined. Uh, you know, able to do mm-hmm. the Highland Fling as often as he wants, but. She's been jilted at the bar. Yeah. You know, well, she could go hang out guy, with so. Baroness Schrader and um <laughs> <laughs> I mean there's a whole there's a whole club here of the spurned woman in, in musicals and in some ways they're they're way more fun to hang out with than Lori and Maria and Julie Jordan and I mean Mrs. Mullins is gonna be in that in that club. I could I could think of a couple <laughs> couple others who might be hanging out in the spurned woman's club and they can go have a drink at the well, bar. I guess and, Anna, and really Anna Lee and Owens, yeah, kind of bless their lucky yeah. stars that they didn't get caught in those particularly toxic relationships, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. So if you have an opportunity to go see Paint Your Wagon, I'm not sure we're telling you that it's a good idea, but it's an interesting well, uh, a screenplay by Patty Chayefsky. Yep. Yeah, the film, the film I think is worth worth revisiting almost as a... It, it, interestingly, Paint Your Wagon has had at least three different attempts that I can find in the last uh, 10, 15 years uh, to rewrite its libretto and kind of bring, it's a fabulous score, kind of bring gives, bring some new life into this thing. So 2007, there was a production in Salt Lake City that tweaked the book, kind of trying to solve some of the problems. Encore in New York City, uh, re kind of rewrote it in some, in some ways in 2015, and then a complete redo by the playwright uh, John Marins in 2018 that started in Seattle. Actually, it was a Seattle production that was kind of, you know, people were wondering, is this going to transfer to Broadway? John Marins threw out the entire book, the entire story, and kind of started fresh, reordered the, all of the songs. Re- I mean, so basically wrote a new musical 
with a couple of the old character names and some of the settings. But basically, an almost actually, in some ways, pulling a lot from the movie, interestingly, um, but interesting. re- telling an entirely new story in some ways, uh, using using these songs and the 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 setting of the of the American West in the in the eighteen fifties. So continued attempts to kind of breathe some new life into this thing and see if it yeah. has legs beyond the mid-century. I think always sort of with mixed results, at least that's my, not having seen any of those productions, that's my read, is that they got mixed reviews. Um, but yeah. boy, this, this score keeps, the score has a life. Uh, they call the it Mariah, Wandering Star, I Talk to the Trees. I mean, these have become kind of standards. And there's other gems in this score that I don't think get, uh, I think Another Autumn is like one of the most beautiful uh, what kind of Broadway sad ballads for a man to sing about? Lone- I mean, it's right up there with some of the Emil de Beck stuff in um, in in South Pacific. There's some there's some really beautiful and some really fun chorus numbers um, yeah. in in Paint Your Wagon. There's 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 it's just it's a I think it's a really strong score. Uh, so I see why people well, are kind of interested in breathing new life into it. Yeah, I mean, I tend to think the strength of Lerner and Lowe is Fritz Lowe, um, yeah. who writes just the most beautiful melodies, absolutely rivaling Richard Rogers, in my humble opinion. But Alan J. Lerner is no Oscar Hammerstein II. Um, no, no, although he does, I don't know. I'm, I'm, he, I'm, has I'm gonna, he has his moments. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to a little bit rise to the defense of Alan J. Lerner. I, th- I think, he's, I think he's, an, he's an interesting lyricist with some moments of brilliance and, uh, yeah. some, and, and a lot of um, unacknowledged biases. But then, I mean, you know, like who among us doesn't have some huge blind spots that... You know, in 50 years, they're, they're probably going to look back at this podcast and think, oh, my God, we're and Peter even talking about these these what? two old, these two white queens and their blind spots. That's, I mean, God. So, I mean, if we're if Fair we're judged, enough. if we're judged 50 later by our blind spots, we are all going to be found wanting. Um, but I, 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 I am intrigued by Alan J. Lerner. I just find his particular combination of brilliance and, and heartbreak um, really fascinating yeah. and really telling. Well, and there's no question that, you know, their canon of, of, uh, of musical theater is up there with the Rodgers and Hammerstein canon and probably with Sondheim as well as uh, if you want to know about musical theater, you have to know about Lerner and Lowe. Yep. So Absolutely. I think there we go, my friend. Yeah. On to the next thing, whatever that may look like. Whatever that may be. Yeah. Until next time. Until next time. Okay. The Gospel of Musical Theatre is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.